0: Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host,
1: Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. I have a special guest to introduce to you today. He is Dr. Gene Edward Veith who is Provost and Professor of Literature at Patrick Henry College in Virginia. Welcome, Dr. Veith, to Beeson Divinity School and to our podcast. Great to be with you. You're actually here at Beeson in connection with a grant we received from the Kern Family Foundation to deal with issues of faith, work, and the economy. It's a grant directed by our colleague, Dr. Mark Devine, And we thank you for coming and helping us to emphasize this really important part of the Christian life and of our work as a theological school. So we're going to be talking about that on this podcast a good bit, some of your writing in that area. But I want to begin by asking you, why did you name your blog Cronach? Well, Lucas
0: Cronach was the great artist of the Reformation, and he was also a really close personal friend of Martin Luther. He was the one who introduced... Uh, Luther to Katie, who he later married, and uh, they're really close friends. Cronach is a great example of vocation, which is a big theme of that blog. Not only was he a great artist, many of the portraits of Reformation figures of Luther and others are by him, and it's very important in the history of art, the transition in from the medieval art to uh, to the Renaissance art. But he was also the mayor of Wittenberg at one point. So that shows the political vocations. He was a pharmacist, um, suggesting the early science vocations. He was, had a printing shop and he was the one who printed Luther's Bible for the first time. Anyway, he just embodies so many of the, of the, of the different vocations that Christians have. He's kind of a good, Kind of role model or patron for the kinds of things we talk about on my
1: blog. I have two portraits of Luther and Katie by Cronach. They're mm-hmm. prints, of course, in my office. And I love that portrait, uh, really the painting he did of Luther preaching in the middle of the congregation. You know what I'm talking yes. about? With Pointing forth with the word of God central to the whole community.
0: Yes. And in at least one of those, we see Christ on the cross. Yes. Uh, and, yes. and that's what Luther was preaching. And uh, Cronach as an artist was great because he was a pioneer in kind of realistic art, but he also used symbols very effectively, and he combines those in some very interesting ways.
1: Anyone who names their blog after Lucas Cronach must be a Lutheran, and you are. Yes. But have you always been a Lutheran?
0: No, I – haven't always been. I, I grew up in a very liberal kind of church, mainline church, and reading C. S. Lewis and others introduced me to, to really to Christianity, things I hadn't really heard from my church growing up. And just gradually I started reading the Bible and becoming brought into the kind of the evangelical scene and it was really working out a lot of my own struggles, my own theological issues, trying to reconcile different things. Uh um in in grad school I I'm a literature professor, really. That's my true calling. Uh, and I was studying George Herbert and others, great poets of that time, of the 17th century. Anyway, that got me into studying Luther, and a lot of my theological things I struggle with are really resolved in, in Luther's kind of unique approach to things. And then I became a Lutheran, joined the Lutheran Church, and just Kind of kept exploring, going deeper and deeper into into that whole tradition, finding more and more things that I think are really uh,
1: helpful. You are a terrific writer. You're, you've written so many things about topics all across the Christian life, uh, literature, art, architecture, culture. Say a little bit more about your interest, particularly in uh, C.S. Lewis and his his work, and and what literature as a discipline, uh, why why that's important for Christians to know and to be engaged with today.
0: Well, I think Christians are always going to need to read. If everybody else quits reading, which some say might happen with the internet or new technology, Christians are going to have to read because we are people of the book, of of the Bible, and God uses a book to communicate himself to us. And so reading... And the whole process of understanding what you read and, and what, uh, I mean, literature just means things that are, that's written down to, to attend to that closely, the, the way that, that, uh, piece of writing can stimulate our imaginations and, and our thinking and shape us and form us. That's what literature is about. And I think that's important for Christians. Uh, I think study of literature made me be able to read the Bible maybe more deeply. And it also shows how, how, how Christian can apply to so many different areas. In college, I was a letters major, studying philosophy, history, and literature. In Find literature sort of satisfied my love of philosophy because I find great issues and the great ideas, but they were applied in a very concrete way in the lives of characters, you know, written about in the, in, in the, in the books I was reading. Uh, it satisfied my desire, my love of history because it takes me inside history. So when I'm reading a book by somebody writing 300 years ago, I have a sense of what It's like to be thinking in those in in that time in that period of those issues, so uh, literature just brought a lot together for me, and uh, and so that's still my first my first love and my true vocation.
1: Well, I was pleased to hear that you had uh, studied George Herbert, uh, Mm -hmm. who with John Donne are Mm -hmm. two of my very favorite Mm -hmm. poets. Uh, What is there about poetry in particular that appeals to you and? It makes it a vibrant medium, in a way, for the Christian story. Well, poetry
0: is not just a matter of rhymes and rhythms and pretty words. Poetry consists largely of of images. In other words, vivid descriptions that, to read poetry, you have to use your imagination. And so I think the imagination is sort of a forgotten part of our mind. We think of the intellect. We think of emotion but i think much of our mind really is preoccupied by imagination when we daydream and we think and we plan and we and we bring up our memories all of that is the imagination and i think that is a very deep part of what makes up each of us and poetry speaks right to the imagination and so i think it can uh, speak to us very deeply, and, and it can help shape our imaginations in a in in a good way. Some things that we might read harm can harm us through our imagination, but the really great works, I think, play a really good part in kind of building that part of us up. Do you think there's a place for poetry in a theological school? I I do. Um, for example, the Psalms. <laughs> the prophets. Much of the, of the Bible, Bible is written is in poetry, poetry. And to read that intelligently, you have to read it as as poetry and understand how poetry works. Uh, and then there's so much just rich devotional poetry that takes us deep, deep into the Christian life. And I think it would help pastors considerably to see what Christians struggle with, what they are helped by, And I think that that would help pastors to see a lot of what their ministry is. Now, the people they work with won't be able to express it as well as a John Dunn, Mm -hmm. But I think just in in kind of opening up the heart, which is what poetry does, that's something that a pastor in many ways is sort of a a doctor of of the heart or of the spirit. Mm -hmm. I think that could be helpful.
1: Now, you've written a book. I want to focus on this a bit. God at work, your Christian vocation in all of life. How do you define vocation? That's a big word for you, isn't it? Well, it is, but it simply means calling. The word
0: vocation simply means it's the Latin word for calling. And the Bible talks about calling and God calling people and uh, very, very often. And the doctrine of vocation in the Reformation. I think it was one of the most important contributions that the, the Reformation had after the the gospel and, and the Scripture. Vocation is the doctrine of the of the Christian life, uh, the priesthood of all believers, the uh, how good works are to be thought of and carried out. Uh, in light of justification by faith. It's a very important concept, and, and it's especially important, too, today because it's, I think, the key to having strong marriages and being good parents and being effective as we live out our faith in this world affecting culture it helps address political issues and so many of the things that christians today are are struggling with the doctrine of vocation shows how we can apply our faith into all these
1: ordinary areas of life Um, i want to ask you about um, the two things you just mentioned justification by faith alone one of the great principles of the reformation and good works because very often those are seen as totally incompatible. Uh, obviously, you don't think so, and I don't think the Reformers thought so, but talk about the tension or however you equate those two dimensions of Reformation theology.
0: Well, Luther made the point that God does not need our good works. God doesn't need anything. And our relationship to him cannot be based on our good work, because we don't have enough to even offer him, and even our good works are contaminated. No, our relationship to God is solely his work, solely what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. And our relationship to him is based on Christ and his cross and his atonement and his resurrection. God doesn't need our good works, Luther said, but our neighbor does. Our neighbor is full of needs. And what happens, as the Reformers understood it, is that we're justified by faith alone in Christ alone. And then God sends us back into the world, into our everyday life, to live out our faith in love and service to our neighbors. And so um, faith is active in love, as Paul says in Galatians. And so the love of our neighbor, the serving our neighbor, that's the purpose of every vocation, whether it's in the workplace, where we're loving and serving our customers, uh, whether it's in the in our marriages, where we're loving and serving our spouse, or in parenting, or loving and serving our, our, our children. Um, those are the neighbors. Every vocation has a particular neighbors and we're to love and serve. And, and that's where our, the fruits of our faith are to be lived out in our callings. It's not a requirement for justification. It's not something that we're offering to God. Rather, it's something that God does through us. Again, God does everything in the Reformation thought. And vocation is about how God works through ordinary human beings doing ordinary things. Uh, We often talk about what God is doing in our lives, vocation about what God is doing through our lives. So Luther says um, – you know, we pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. God gives us our daily bread through the vocation of farmers and and millers and bakers and the people who prepare our meal every day. It's God who's giving us our food. We thank him for it when we say a prayer of thanksgiving before we eat, but God is working through all of those people to give us our basic needs. God is taking care of us, but he works through human beings. Uh, he works through human, through mothers and fathers, to create new life, a new immortal soul. He's doing that through mothers and fathers and the vocations of of the family.
1: Now, you pointed out uh, uh, in, in your talk at Beeson that Luther says God could have made children just poof, right, like He did Adam and Eve, right. But uh, He chooses this other yeah. means. Yeah,
0: and God can do things without means. He can grant healing instantly, and sometimes he does, but he prefers to do it through doctor, bring even healing through doctors and nurses and people in the medical vocations. When somebody is recovered, we thank God for that. But see, God has been working through these people whom he has gifted to bring healing. He can give daily bread Instantly, like he did with the children of Israel with the manna in the wilderness. But he chooses to work through human beings who constitute eventually the whole economic system to, to provide his, his, his gifts to us. And that's the way he providentially works in the world by uh, working through human beings and he is called and equipped to, to do so.
1: Now you say God uses uh, the farmer, the miller, the baker to make our bread. But, of course, in the modern world, he also uses the grocer. That's right. uh, And he uses the the trucks that carry the substances back and forth and so forth. So we're really talking here about economy, aren't we? That's right. Talk a little bit about that word, where it comes from, and how you understand economy. The word uh,
0: economy and economics come from the Greek word oikos, which means home or house. And it literally means the word economy means the, the the laws of the household. So it includes when, – when Luther talks about vocation, he doesn't talk so much about jobs. You know, we, we use that term, one of those theological words that has sort of lost its theological meaning. We think vocation means just the job, what you do for a living. But for Luther, he talks about the estate of the household – which includes the family and the way the family makes a living. Now, in Luther's time, of course, late medieval uh, society, people made their living at home, mostly. They're peasant farmers, or if you're a shoemaker, you your shop was in your home, and the wife and kids and everybody all joined in had an important part to play in making the shoes. And so work was a function of the family uh, originally. And the Bible talks similarly about in, in terms of their economic system. But so the economy is just sort of an extension you now of the, the laws of the household kind of on a bigger scale. Uh, you have things like the division of labor. Plato, of course, talks about that, the division of labor. Some people are good at one thing and some are good at something else. Somebody is good at building a house. Somebody else is is good at making clothes. And in the, in the economy, there becomes a system of exchange through currency or bartering or uh, the financial system of some kind, which varies a lot over, over history. What it is is people are basically doing things for each other so that one person, we don't all have to make our own clothes, build our own house, uh, raise our own food it becomes a function of a a society where people are doing things for each other and we become interdependent on each other. Really, that's simply community. That's people living together, giving and receiving from each other. So in light of vocation, and you see that in terms of kind of God's design, Mm. how he wants us to live, he does want us to live in this kind of mutual interdependence. Caring for each other, loving and serving each other, this network of love. Now, modern economics will see all of this in terms of, of self interest. People are pursuing their rational self interest and competing, and you have the laws of economics working. And uh, you can look at the very same phenomena, the way the economy works, and see that not just in terms of, of self interest, but in terms of self-giving, self-sacrifice for the sake of others. And so it has a completely different moral meaning when you look
1: at it through the lens of, of vocation and of God's design. Now that opens up a whole new realm of discussion. For example, today it seems to me in our public discourse, economy and politics mm-hmm. are so intertwined, it's mm-hmm. hard to separate the two. And you have these various models. Maybe the two most prominent would be the free market model, capitalism. Mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, you have collectivism or socialism or whatever word you want to call that. Uh, is one of these, from a Christian or biblical point of view, preferable to the other? And how do you know? The the, the Bible describes
0: an economic system in the Old Testament under that, uh, under that particular uh, order where Debts are forgiven every seven years. Um, You you have different kinds of economies which require different kinds of laws and, and even thinking about them. Um, in different ages, before money, we had a means of of, of exchange of, of money. Uh, again, you have a very different uh, e- economy: uh, the Greeks and the Romans, and the the ancient Hebrews, and the Middle Ages, and the early modern period, and then industrialism, and now the information age. You have different kinds of. Economies which require different kinds of economics. So I, I don't think you, there's there's a single biblical economic system unless there's a single biblical uh, economy that that they're describing. Uh, but I think there's some common themes. Um, I, I think the way that we split out economics and politics and ethics and religion that's sort of a symptom of the kind of fragmentation of so much of modern thought. And one of the things you have, I think, in a biblical view is a kind of bringing those together. I think the doctrine of vocation helps us to do that. Uh, the point, the some of the common elements are that we, that, that each person has different gifts um, and that we use those gifts for others and that we receive from others. So that basic principle of exchange, of, of doing things for, for each other, and you know, whether that's mediated by money, or whether it's a barter system, or whether you have you know, the complicated uh, financial system that we have, it, it all comes down to that, basically. And uh, there are laws of economics, just as God builds natural... The, the laws of nature into his creation. I think the, the economic order is very similar so that when there's so much of a product that more than people need, the price of it goes down. Uh, I spent some time in the former Soviet Union when it was still under communism, and I saw even in that system that repudiated capitalism, laws of supply and demand still operated. Mm. Uh, uh, bread was offered it very inexpensive so that the masses could have bread. The problem was it cost more to produce the loaf than they would have. So the stores just didn't have any bread. Mm. It was very cheap, but there was none. And so the laws of, of economics in those sense, I, I do think there are laws that are similar to, uh, to, to, to the laws of chemistry or physics or other things. But, um, Even under communism, you know, uh, it was wrong to steal, Uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, even when property was supposedly owned collectively, uh, they still had problems with burglary, and there was still puny. So, there's some universal things Mm -hmm. that I think keep insinuating themselves, but the doctrine of vocation seems to work sort of at every
1: at every level. I want to ask you. I love the way you expressed. it doesn't have to be self-interest. It can be uh, disinterest and uh, a redirection of your interest to the other. I mean, the Bible speaks a lot about caring for the widow, the orphan, yeah. the poor. Uh, I guess my question to you is, I'm thinking of our economic system now primarily, what is it that motivates one to redirect from self-interest to the other, to the neighbor?
0: In other words, what is it that provokes love in us? Uh, And love is when we put – when we care so much about someone else that we're willing to put ourselves and our needs, to set those aside or sacrifice them for someone else. Uh, Jesus talks about, um, uh, you know, if we're to follow him, we're to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. And the cross, among other things – Involves suffering, but also involves sacrifice, and so I think in every vocation, the purpose is to love and serve our neighbor, and that involves that kind of self-sacrifice for the good of someone else. Our whole society is focused on self-fulfillment. We see that marriage advice and financial advice and political advice—it's all about self, That's self, for self. Me. That's right. Whereas Scripture talks about denying the self. someone else. And there's so much joy in love. Everyone talks about love and talks about the satisfaction of love and they want to love and be loved. And yet we're taught to fixate on ourselves, which just kills love and quenches it and makes the one we love have to serve us, which again, damages the love. So how
1: do we learn to love people? And more than that how, how do we as a society or a culture inculcate love? You can't do that by passing a law or can you? And yet there are certain uh needs we have in this world that require us uh, as good neighbors to be concerned about those uh who are suffering. That seems to me a legislative political issue and is love really the answer to that? Love um involves
0: compassion uh involves empathy, weeping for those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice. And really the way to cultivate love is faith, faith. Uh, Paul in Galatians talks about faith is active in love. And the reason, the connection between those two is that when you know or when I know what a sinner I am and then to know God's love he gave me freely in Christ. And I really face up to my sin and really face up to God's grace. How can I look at somebody else who's sinful or who I don't like knowing what I'm like? And, and so f- knowing faith helps us to, to love. Now, we have to grow in that love, and, and this is where sanctification and, and growing in our faith comes from, because we, we can have faith, but we still don't love as we should. But the New Testament is very clear about, about the goal of that, and so you know, faith, hope, and love, the greatest of these is, is, is love, and, and so that's, that, that's what God wants for us. And I think faith properly can, can make our hearts more sensitive. To other people, because mm-hmm. we can relate to other people and empathize with them, knowing again from our self knowledge and to seeing that they are sinners the same way that we are. So, and just in fact, in an experience, I think as we grow in faith, we do grow in, in love for one another. Now, how does that work on the big social? I'm not sure that it can or does in that the big political systems and things are not on the, on the human scale, uh, although I think cultivating these things on the human scale can can manifest themselves in the way we uh, carry out other things in our society.
1: Um, I've been talking today with uh, Dr. Gene Veith uh, on the theme of faith, work, and the economy on vocation. And we're almost out of time, Dr. Veith, but uh, – you're speaking to a lot of people on this podcast who are pastors or church workers of one kind or another, and I wonder, with the focus on vocation in particular, if you could just say a word to them that would mm-hmm. help them understand their work, their yeah, vocation, yeah. in the light of these multiple vocations we've been talking about.
0: Well, pastors talk about getting a call into the ministry and later and getting a call to a congregation, and, and that's talking about vocation and understand that the call is coming from God himself. And if you're a pastor, what that means is that God is working through you. God is teaching his people through your voice. He's proclaiming his word through your sermons. He's giving spiritual comfort and care to people who are broken through your ministry. And just to understand that, when you understand vocation about God working through you, it takes some of the pressure off, I think, and it makes it more meaningful. Uh, and you, and you can do that in the, in the, in the confidence that it's not all up to you. God is using you as an instrument. And, um, that's very important for pastors to realize. I also wish that pastors would teach this to their people, teach them that their vocations as husbands and wives, as fathers and mothers, as you know, factory workers or farmers or lawyers or politicians or whatever they are, that, that God can work through those too. And that um the, the Christian life isn't just something that happens in, in church or doing, you know, church kind of things, like witnessing or prayer, or other things as important as those are. But they can carry that out into their many different vocations, and those vocations become a way of serving God. When they're serving others, God counts that, for serving him. And it just gives so much meaning to the, the ordinary realm that uh, – Your your people will really find this very liberating when they understand about uh, vocation.
1: My guest today on the Beeson Podcast has been Dr. Gene Edward Veith. He is provost and professor of literature at Patrick Henry College and the author of a wonderful book, God at Work, Your Christian Vocation in All of Life. Thank you so much, Dr. Veith. My pleasure.